Is this thing recording already? It is? All right. Well, I know it's on. I don't know if it's recording. We don't want to lose this. Okay. Well, uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah. Um, I wonder why we don't do it. He is born. He's born indeed. Yeah, that would be, yeah, we, should, we should start a new one. Uh, <laughs> um, obviously, fourth Sunday of Advent and nativities looming. Uh, just by way of uh, just small business, uh, I don't know that Sunday school meets next week. All I know is that I won't be here next week. I don't think there, there is no Sunday school. Okay, so that worked out perfectly. Great. Well, uh, you can see from the outline on the board uh, that we are continuing with the life of Jesus Christ, and we're going to remain in Matthew. Last week we looked at uh, some of Matthew's, I mean, some of Jesus' charge to his disciples as they were going out to, uh, to further Christ's ministry. And we heard about the dangers of persecution and to not be afraid and, uh, you know, all that was entailed with that. Now, this, what we're going to look at this morning, is on the tail end of them having returned. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that, but, but Luke and Mark do, that the apostles have returned and upon returning as well, uh, there is news now of John the Baptist's beheading. Uh, this has happened, and Jesus is getting word of this. The apostles have returned to him, and that's kind of the setting for why they would retreat. We're going to find that they're going to retreat from the crowds, and that's kind of, I'll go into the reason why in just a moment. We have come to a point where we are two years, it seems odd, but we're two years into Jesus' ministry. Um, this, this marks basically one year until the cross, because John's account of this particular passage tells us that it was the Passover season, and reconstruction of the Passovers that Jesus lived through, this puts us at about 29 AD, I mean, and, I mean, I mean 29, yeah, 29, and we're looking at heading we're, we're heading towards the the last year so that's where we are time-wise just so you're you're aware of that I mentioned the other Mark and Luke and John I've already mentioned that they have things to say about this this is what you see in outline invert in, in point one uh, worry to wonder is more familiar to us as the feeding of the 5,000 this is the only miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. So all four Gospels record this particular miracle. And it's the only one that's in all four. And we'll talk about why I titled it Worry to Wonder once we get in, into it. And then the second point, uh, which is uh, wavering to worship, that's the account of Jesus walking on the water. Um, so you have here two miracle accounts, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, that uh, calls a lot of consternation for, for people who are post-scientific revolution, you know, post-enlightenment. We, we, you know, so a lot of folks do backflips to try to explain these miracles away. It's one thing to say Jesus healed people or cast out demons. Uh, people who are skeptics could say, well, you know, that's psychosomatic sort of stuff. In these cases, it's a little tougher. These are overt miracles of Jesus showing himself Lord of creation. 
and it's hard to dismiss these. In fact, it seems so important that all, all four gospel writers included this first one. So, uh, as we get into it, well, I'll bring up some of the uh, alternate theories to try to, you know, they would say clean it up. But we're going to proceed from, uh, amazingly, from the standpoint that the gospel records are accurate and that Jesus did these things, and these are matters of, of historic record. In other words, we're going to take the miracles seriously. Now, we may have some wonders about, well, how did this happen? You should, because if you didn't, they're not miracles. See, that's the point, as to wonder how this would happen. Uh, and we, we won't be able to explain all of it, but there are reasons for these to be here, not just Jesus showing off. There's more going on. In fact, there's the literal level of the feeding of the 5,000 and the literal level of him walking on water, but there are lessons underneath and especially throughout the history of the church that we have latched onto. The first about vocation, what God does with what we bring and how he multiplies it. And the second, uh, what happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus? And you'll see that in the second point. Well, that's a, enough by way of introduction. So the setting is, um, Jesus has just learned of, you know, you know, not just that moment, but has, has learned of the death of John the Baptist, his cousin, his colleague, someone he's known all of his life. We forget, right? This is going to affect him like it would affect us. And he is going to, he's going to basically, with his disciples, get away from the crowds. Remember, he's two years in, and wherever he goes, there are people. People want to be near him. He's the miracle worker. He's the one who people are talking about. Could this be the guy? So they, he, wants, he wants some time to get away, to debrief with the disciples, and also just to reflect on the loss of his cousin, his colleague, his friend. And what this means. Probably a little bit, too, to just kind of get out from under Herod Antipas's sort of rule for right now. Because Herod has learned about Jesus, we're told, right before this. And he's wondering, well, is this John the Baptist come back? In other words, Herod's a little nervous, too. So you have all of that going into the going away. With that in mind, let's read now. Chapter 14 of Matthew, chapter 14 of Matthew, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 21. Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Okay. Jesus feeds the 5,000. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately into a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him in fo on foot and through towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed the sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they do, they do not need to go away. You give them something here to eat here. We have here only five loaves 
of bread and two little fishes. He answered, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were very well satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, beside women and children. So on the surface, of course, it's a pretty significant miracle. Uh, to feed 5,000 men plus women and children, people would estimate upwards of 10,000 people or more, uh, to, to the point where you're picking up extra, that people were filled. So, uh, again, significant miracle. We're going to look, however, at what leads to this so that the outline makes sense. Um, first, we're told that, uh, they, he goes, that he wants to go away privately. Now, Matthew doesn't include that the disciples are there with him, but, of course, in the narrative, they're there, and in the other accounts, we're told that the disciples do go with him. Now, from reconstructions, it appears they're going from an area around Capernaum up to the northeastern shore, somewhere up in there of the Lake of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee. And the people are already there. Okay, They know he's leaving, and they have, uh, in their zeal to be with Jesus, they have actually crossed around the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and they're already there and more coming so this is a significant crowd probably more along the way as they go and what strikes me initially is that Jesus doesn't respond the way I would have responded in that look I'm this is my time I am hurting here guys I'm tired the disciples just got back they're going to debrief with me. In other words, I've got, in other words, he's, the schedule's set, right? And here are all of these people clamoring for him. And rather than him going, just, just give me one day, man, he, he looks on them and has sorrow for them. Uh, in Matthew's account, we're told he looks and he sees as, as sheep without a shepherd. I mean, in Mark's account, as sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion. That's lesson one all of us can have and learn. Uh, we, you know, we all have our planners. Most of them now are on the gadgets. But, and I'm that way too. We think of our time as our time and I've got my schedule. What's going to happen when there are people in need who don't keep to our schedule? These people didn't. And if we are followers of the Master, we help. There's, there's one thing that struck me right off the bat, knowing that he's leaving in sorrow and knowing that, you know, just to get away from and then here they are. And he loves them. And he loves them to such an extent that, that he's healing. The other accounts say he's also teaching as he does this. And he does it until it gets well into the evening to the point where the disciples now are worried. Hence the worry. They're worried now about all these people. What's going to happen? They, they, we have to feed them. They need to eat. Master, and, and again, uh, it's not that they resent, I don't think. We're not told they resent all these people. They're, they're, they're wondering how to take care of them now. So let's send them away 
so that they have time to get to the villages to find what they can to eat, whatever it might be. Uh, in the other accounts, we're told that, uh, that, I, you know, that uh, Philip says, you, you, can't feed, you can't feed all these people with 200 denarii, meaning 200 days wages. You're not going to be able to feed all these people. Uh, so now they look around, and what do you got? And in John's account, we're told it was a little boy, right? It was a boy who had this, the loaves and fishes. Now, we need, when we say loaves, we think sleeves of bread with nice cellophane and a tie. Uh, that's not what's going on here. These little barley cakes, basically. Poor, poor man bread. Little, little small barley cakes and some dried fish. Mmm. Um, <laughs> yum. Um, so... This is travel food, right? This is what you're going to do when you're traveling. You, you, you take stuff that will keep. So that's what they have. And I love, and here's the next, here's the next thing I want us to notice. They said, uh, when they say this place is desolate, I mean, they're in the wilderness. And send them away so they can buy food. And Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Come on. Yeah, you do it. Uh, in the sense that, you know, I think often that's uh, how it strikes us sometimes. Jesus, all these things need to happen and all these need to take place. Well, all right then. Do it. You do it. Well, I can't. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. Woe is me. Who am I? I only have this and you want me to feed them you want us to do it and that is our we're in that position all the time okay in that God takes what meager provisions and what meager resources we have and he blesses them and then we stand back on the other side in wonder at wow look at what God did through Jesus Christ through our meager little bit and I think that's a lesson we need to take away from this. Yes, there's a miracle, but one of the things we need to learn as Christ's followers is this faithfulness in using what he's provided to meet the needs of others. It's not going to look possible often. Just think of probably the, the founders of this church, you know, back in the 19th century. I wonder how that looked in a largely Roman Catholic area to start a Protestant church. How, how, did that, how did that seem? When I was reading this too, I thought of uh, the school I work at, founded in 1999 with 13 kids. Uh, but they, they said, we're going to do it, and we're going to take what we've got, and we're just going to be faithful and see what God does. And now it's a, a pretty large private classical Christian school in Bernie that's graduated. This will be our 11th class. And the founders are all still there, and they all stand back all the time in amazement. It's fun to watch them just, and they're just, wow. And all their kids graduated too, by the way. So, and they're still around. It's pretty cool. Well, they bring what they have, and Jesus blesses it, gives thanks for it, and then passes it out. And here's where we want to know, how did this work? Here's where my mind goes, all right, he hands them 
the bread he's broken, and we're told other places, the fish too. Now, how do they start passing this out? And it doesn't run out. I mean, the, you know, we want to know the nature of it. Does, the, the, does it just fill up? Do, you know, as they pass it, they realize they have more. What? We're not told. We're just told that it's more than enough. Mark adds the fun detail that they're all sitting in little patches of green grass. It's Passover, it's spring, so there's green grass. It's like this paradisical sort of setting, and groups of 50 to 100. So they're in, they're in regimented groups that we're told. Uh, makes it easier to count, right? How do they know there's 5,000? Well, if there's, they're sitting in groups, then okay, you get it. So um, anyway, uh, and, it, and they all eat. And they eat to the point where all 12 apostles go around collecting scraps. And they fill their baskets. Why 12 baskets? My, my guess is there's 12 of them. Um, and that's not to be lost on us too, right? The 12. Because what, what the people, what a lot of these people are perceiving in this, and what Matthew 2 wants us to, to hear that we kind of miss, is that it was during the Passover that people were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, and the coming of the Messiah would bring about some of these wonders that have happened in the past, like Moses feeding people in the wilderness, or God feeding people through Moses in the wilderness with manna. They were anticipating such things, and this has taken place. That's why in John's account we're told that the reason he sends them away at the end is because they were going to forcefully take him to Jerusalem and set him up as king. Because this has got to be the guy. So they, they perceive it accurately, but it's not the right timing in this case. And there's not a full understanding, of course, of his messiahship. But this whole Moses overtone is meant for us to see. Of course, the church, after the resurrection, after the institution of the Lord's Supper and the sacraments, looks back on this and sees foreshadowings as well of the sacrament. Um, while it's not a say, there's no wine, there's none of that going on, seeing foreshadowing of Christ sharing himself, sharing his blessings with the people. John actually makes much more of that in his account, looking back on this. So you have those foreshadowings as well. Um, remember I told you that there are people who are getting nervous about this. Well, you can't feed 5,000 people with this. So, of course, there are those who would say this is merely legend. This is just the gospel writers, you know, making this up, uh, which is kind of odd since it's in all four. There's got to be something going on here if all four find it significant to record. There are those as well who would say, well, there's no real miracle of the bread multiplying. It's people's hearts changing. The implication here is that they only found these five loaves and two fishes because that's the only amount people were willing to say they had. In other words, everyone had food. They brought with them, like, I'm not going to share. You know, in other words, there's that selfish sort of thing. And people will say that the miracle is once Jesus blessed what was given and starts to share, then their hearts, you know, the calluses on their hearts, their selfishness broke down. And, and they started sharing, and, and to the point where they realized there was more than enough for everybody if everyone would pitch in. That sounds really cool, but they had ways of saying that. 
Does that make sense? Like, they, like, like I just said. In other words, the gospel writers could have said, and because of Jesus' generosity, people's stinginess melted away, and they realized they had enough food. And they get. In other words, you wouldn't write it in this veiled sort of language, I don't think. This, this doesn't smack of that. That's not worthy of all four gospel writers saying, you know what, one time everyone got unselfish. It was more of, you're not going to believe this. So that's why I take it we, we do a disservice to the text if we don't allow this to be overtly a multiplication of what was given. Real food. And their worry turned to wonder. Just like we often experience if we'll open ourselves to what God is doing. So that's the feeding of the 5,000. There's also a feeding of the 4,000 that two of the Gospels record. A uh, little bit different, but in this case, I want us to see this is the beginning of a turning point in Jesus' ministry where people now start to recognize and see there's a little more overtness coming. Um, and it's going to make some changes as we go forward. Now, because, as John said, these people recognize this has got to be what this is. They, they want to forcefully make him king. Um, and who knows how the disciples are perceiving this at this point. We're told that he sends them away and then sends the crowd away. And that what's, that's what leads to the next episode. Yes, sir? Well, I'm happy to start the tradition of the post-church picnic. So we use fried chicken now. <laughs> uh, but, however, the other point is that the disciples didn't even know they were unprepared. And that's how Jesus comes to us. We're in a situation we don't even know we're unprepared until suddenly Jesus asks the question. God asks the question. Feed them, or how can you feed them? Then we know we're unprepared. We never knew it before. They didn't know that they were unprepared. But God used them Anyway, God is always prepared. Good. Yeah, you could say one thing. I'm going to mention that was the world's first picnic. (laughs) The after church picnic. Well, let's, um, I'm going to walk back over here because I want us to read aloud now verses 22 to 33 under wavering to worship. Immediately. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat and walked out on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. 
Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they had climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Mm -hmm. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, this is twice now that they've been on the lake. Remember the first one, right, where he's, he's with them in a sleep, and he stills the sea. Now, here's another episode of this. I know they're probably starting to get a complex about this. This has never happened before. <laughs> so, let's go ahead and re reenact this, or re re you know, kind of reset the, the, the scene. Um, so, the crowds are there. He sends the disciples away ahead of time. He says to go to the other side. There's a lot of debate about where they are, where they're going to, and all that kind of stuff. And I started reading a lot of it, and I went, I don't care. Um, so I stopped. Uh, and I was going to unpack it for you, draw a map, but I don't care. So, um, so they're on the lake. That's the key. And Jesus goes away uh, by himself to pray and to, to commune with his Father. And we're told that it's at the third watch of the night. The Romans divided the, basically 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four watches. How many hours each? Fourth watch. Hmm? Oh, is it fourth watch? Yes, sorry. Thank you. Fourth watch. <laughs> He's, Tyler's back here. He's my cue card. Yeah. <laughs> Tom has to correct me. You should come with signs. Uh, that's not, you, you said Mark and we're in Matthew. Okay. Um, so fourth watch, so that would be anywhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's, it's early in the morning. Uh, it's dark. Uh, you know, they don't have searchlights on the boat. They're rowing. They're rowing against the wind. And it's, it's again, another, you know, another of those gales that come down through the valley and, and, and gets things rough. And so they're frightened, and they're working hard, and Jesus comes to them. Interesting, Mark adds that um, he was walking past them. He was, he, was, he was going to go past them, like to meet them on the other side. Matthew doesn't include that, but it is intriguing that it doesn't seem as if he's come just to see how they're doing to rescue them. It's along the way he sees that there's problems. Um, which is pretty cool to the setting. Now, we're told, and again, this is what's so odd about it. This is one of those miracles that, okay, wait a minute. He was walking on the water? I mean, what do we make of that? Not only walking, and it's, remember the sea is rough. The lake is rough. It's not this placid, you know, walking along this, you know, glassy sea. And he's walking on it? And immediately, our minds, of course, are, okay, now, wait a minute, something's got to be going on here. Was he on, were, there, were they close to the edge and there were stones? He was, he was stepping on the stones to somehow make it look like he was walking on the water. Once again, they had ways, like I just did, to say he was stepping on stones that made it look like he was walking on water. In other words, there are ways to say these things. Uh, some have made a big deal about the... Uh, the, the case of the nouns after a preposition, epi, the Greek the preposition epi. When you learn Greek, you get to that preposition and pretty much you just throw it out the window because 
it can mean a bunch. It can mean almost all of our prepositions. On, upon, over, toward, under. It just goes, it depends on context. And here, if you look in uh, verse, verse 20, let's see. Da, 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 da. Yeah, verse 26. No, sorry. Why don't I look at my notes? That would be easier. Uh, 25 and 26, yeah. He came to them walking on the sea. Some would say that that can be translated towards the sea, and it can be, because uh, it's an accusative case there with the sea. But then it changes in verse 26 to genitive. Don't worry if you understand all that. If you don't remember all your inflected language stuff from high school, that's okay. Um, the disciples saw him walking on the sea. That could be by the sea. So the re the, the to try to clean this up is to say that, well, Jesus kind of saw them and then walked towards the lake and then saw that they were closer, then started walking by the lake, and it kind of looked like he was on the lake. So, the, so they say, so you can't translate it that way in Greek. Yes, you can. But when Peter gets out of the boat, it's the same, it's the same preposition, and it's the accusative, the sea is accusative, and he's not walking from the boat toward the sea. He's in this, on the sea. So you see, it, it kind of breaks down. What I'm trying to tell you is it's fun to, to see how much people will try to do to get over the fact that miracles can't happen. What that does is betray a philosophic presupposition. Uh, we in our, in our contemporary world have difficulty thinking that the supernatural invades the natural. We have, and, and rightly so, we want to try to find natural explanations for things, but it's a philosophic danger to then say, no supernatural can happen. And it's only by saying that that you would say, well, this can't happen. The average Christian says, I know under normal circumstances, this can't happen. That's what makes it a miracle, because it appears that here it did. This, of course, shows on, the, on, the, on one level, the surface level, I was going to say that, but that's kind of pun, surface. Okay, okay. On one level, um, that uh, Jesus is like with the multiplication of, of the food, and here, with him actually eventually calming the elements and walking on water, that he is Lord of creation. Why should that shock us? If he is God incarnate, naturally he is Lord of creation. We're told that all things were created through him, by him, for him. Why would he not be able to do this? We're told as well that post-resurrection, we will have a body like his. We may be able to do some of this stuff. At home in both supernatural and natural, new heavens and new earth. That'll be cool. <laughs> Darn it. But you see what I mean? Well, with that being said, they're afraid, and he says, by the way, the stadia, uh, we're told that they were, um, where was it? Yeah, by the boat was already many stadia away. A stadium is where they play football. No, that's why we call it that, because, they, because of the length of the Colosseums in Rome, we call those places stadiums now. It's about 600 feet. So a couple of football fields. Uh, but they, and, and John tells us they were probably 25 stadia out. So 
three or four miles is, is how far out they were uh, into the sea. And Jesus comes to them. Now, first, though, they, see, they think they see a, the Greek word here is phantasma. You hear the word phantom, right? So you hear that, that term there. Often ter- meant to mean a deceiving spirit, not just some kind of ghost, but a deceiving spirit. The sea being thought of as the place of evil spirits. And anyway, they're, they're frightened. Well, I would be too. You're not expecting someone to just come walking across the water. The water. No wave runners. Here he is. And he says, take courage. Be of good cheer. That's your Christmas greeting for you. Be of good cheer. Take courage. On the other side, he says, again, don't be afraid. There it is again. How often do we need to be told, don't be afraid. And sandwiched in the middle, it is I, which in the Greek is ego I me, which can be translated, I am. I am. So here's another one of those sort of veiled references. I am. So that being said, introduce Peter. That's why I'm using this account because Matthew is the only one that records what Peter, what Peter did. Matthew's the only one that has now Peter's reaction. Since it's you, and note we translated if it's you. In Greek, there's something called the first class conditional sentence, which presumes the, the, the truth of the if clause. So it's more like since. So since it's you, then he wants permission though, right? Now remember, they've been away on this mission where they have been doing the things that Jesus did. They've been able to cast out Demons heal, those kinds of things. And now he's saying, well then, call me and I'll come to you. So before we bash Peter for having, oh, you have little faith. Once again, we see Peter in both lights, right? Peter's a great exemplar for all of us, making bold proclamations and jumping out, man. And then also being, in some cases, a weenie. That's a, that's a Greek term as well. All right. So both. And you're going to start seeing this more and more and more from here on out. But Peter is also that foundation. So he says, call me and I'll do it. And I love, it's just so subtle. Come. Yeah. Come. Or just, go ahead, go. That's how I see it. I don't know, just... You know, because it's just so, you know, he's on the water. and might not be chill about it, right? So he got out of the boat, walked on the water until he saw his circumstances. Reality sort of, ah, I can't believe I'm doing this. Look around, there's a storm. And notice it says he, when he saw the, the wind, you know, the, the, what the wind was doing. It's not that when he saw he was walking on water. It was more that he saw the circumstances around him that he started to waver. And he started to sink. Jesus, of course, rescues him and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Now, that word doubt is interesting. In, uh, 
other places it can be, and especially in extra-biblical literature, it has to do with trying to go two directions at once. Or it can be used to serve two masters. So it's not just, I don't believe this is Jesus, or I don't believe that Jesus can help me. It's not that kind of doubt. It's, it's trying to have one foot here and one foot there. That idea of, all right, I'm going to do this, but I'm still going to hold back a little bit. And which is natural for us. When Jesus demands our all, we sometimes want to go, I'll go this way a little bit, but I'm going to hold on a little bit to here too. And it appears that's what Peter was doing. While he had faith, help his unbelief. You know, I believe, but help my unbelief. He still kept back a little bit of, I can't do this. There's no way this could be happening. And hence, that kind of doubt, which I think is natural for all of us. But, of course, the lesson throughout the history of the church is, look, we, we never really had cause to be afraid. Jesus was on the shore at one point and then starts walking by, but, hey, he's with us. We've already learned that lesson. And now, just to show it again, he gets Peter, takes him on the boat, and everything, without even a rebuke, a vocal rebuke of the weather, everything's calm. And it's at this point where that wavering, Peter's wavering, then we read, turns to worship. And when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Now, this is hearkening to Peter's eventual confession as well, when Jesus asked, what are the people saying that I am? Now, how much of this did they understand? This is pre-crucifixion, right? This is pre-resurrection. Their full understanding of what it meant for him to be God's son at that point is not as theologically informed as ours at this point. But, in their understanding of who he is, this is one of those moments that Despite all that they had seen, and they still were wondering, this brings them to a point of worship. You are God's son. Yes, sir. Did I, was I supposed to say something five? No, okay, good. <laughs> Kind of messy all the way through. I'm not going to use it as just a, this is a watershed. Mo- oh, God, that was bad. A watershed. Man, I just can't avoid it. Okay. Um, I'm not going to say it's that because there's going to be more times again where it's going to kind of back away and they're going to wonder again and rabbi, they're going to call him that. So it's, it's a continual, a continual opening up and awakening for them. Yes, sir. Well, of course, it, it, you know, it's the first thing that comes to my mind, and by the way, I'm sorry, I need to say these questions for people who aren't here. The question was, he struck that, that the, the disciples didn't recognize him until he spoke. And the, on, on the surface, <laughs> sorry, oh, oh, man, okay, at one level, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's dark and stormy, and they rec- they, while not recognizing him, they recognize, of course, his voice. 
if they can't see who he is because of the elements, then that would, of course, be on the surface. Can't stay away from it. But uh, it also, of course, uh, as, you know, we, we, we think back to, uh, but coming later on in post-resurrection appearances, it's, they don't recognize him as well until he speaks. Um, those are the two things that come to mind here. What about you? There are those who would say this is sort kind of a pre-transfiguration, that there was something different about him at this yeah, point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I just love the phrase that you said just now. That was great. He was doing this God thing. <laughs> I love that. In both cases, I think, um, we, we run up against two stories here that skeptics are going to try to debunk because it's just, it's just too much. And, of course, those are also the same people who are going to debunk the resurrection. That that can't happen. But I think we as faithful followers of Christ who, who not just depend on blindly shutting our eyes to, to what we know ain't so, but to recognizing you know, all that's gone into producing what we know is our New Testament, all of, the, all of the, the, the evidence for the authenticity of the historical record, I think we do a disservice if we try to water it down a little bit. We need to let these stand. Oh, I said water... I'm just going to be quiet. Okay. Um, to, and, and secondly, though, in the midst of these miracles, I think we do well to recognize that God will use us where we are, prepared, unprepared, what little meager we have. We give it to him. He blesses it. Stand back and watch what he does. That doesn't mean we don't have to do any work, but stand back and watch what he does. And then secondly, of course, uh, the idea of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, when we seem to be doing some things that oh, this just can't be done, and when we're afraid, let's remember those words of, uh, take courage, I am or it is I, don't be afraid. Merry Christmas, guys. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this time we can share together. As always, it's humbling uh, that, that we get to... Uh, Come to this amazing place, uh, you know, not just the building, but just a place that's been so faithful throughout, yeah. throughout the years, and that we get to be here together. Uh, thank you for that, and that we get to study Scripture uh, in a room that's seen so many amazing things happen, named after a pastor who is, uh, who's done so much. We are, we are just the, the children of legacy, and uh, we are so grateful for that. Our prayer now is that as we enter into... Uh, this final week of the Advent, and as we celebrate uh, the Nativity, that we do so uh, constantly marveling at the fact that uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and allow our minds to be blown apart again by that revelation. Thank you as well that uh, you use what we have uh, in service to you, and that we do not need to be afraid. Thank you, Father, for your gifts in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, goodbye, podcast people.